you hire A players and you lead them well. I just think most of my job is taking what the board says, going and delivering a clear vision and then letting people execute. And when they have big issues, that if they bring it to me, it's an issue that they really need help on and I need to get it resolved. Get the A players on and pour into them and lead them well and they'll go flourish and then let them be free. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In today's episode, I talk with my friend and former Fightin' Texas Aggie Yell Leader, an entrepreneur who grew up in Whitesboro, Texas before going on to build a career in wealth management. Jonathan started out at AT&T and Goldman Sachs, but eventually left to launch his own independent investment firm. More recently, Jonathan co-founded Bird Dog, an online marketplace that connects landowners with hunters. We'll hear about Jonathan's journey from small town kid to successful entrepreneur, the lessons he learned along the way, and now he's bringing technology and innovation to the hunting industry. Jonathan is all about living life to the fullest, taking risks, and is constantly learning and growing. So I think listeners will find his outlook inspiring regardless of their background or industry. Get ready for some high energy inspiration. Well, today is a super fun one, bringing in an old college buddy, Jonathan Lusk. Welcome to In the Thick of It. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. So you grew up in small town, Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whitesboro? That's right. Yeah. What was Jonathan Lusk in Whitesboro, Texas like as a kid? Oh, my goodness. It was was pretty crazy. So Whitesboro is a small town of about 2,500 people north of here, Dallas, about 70 miles, 10 miles south of Oklahoma. Very poor family growing up. My dad was a fisheries biologist, still is. And so he stocked uh, and managed lakes and ponds with fish. And so we grew up, you know, sanding ponds and working. There were six of us. You're one of six kids? I'm one of six. So my mom left when I was in kindergarten. And then my dad got remarried, had my little brother. And then I had two step siblings. So there were six of us in the house growing up. And my dad made, I found out when I got my first job out of college, I was making 55,000 bucks a year. And he's like, that's more than I make. I was like, how much do you make? He's like 30 grand a year. It's like, you raised six of us on $30,000 a year. He's like, yeah. So it was, we didn't really know just because the community doesn't really flourish there. And it's more of like, how, how do you get out of here and go do something else? And there are a few people a year that do get out and go to college. But most of my friends growing up still live there. Got some, you know, fun stories. My best friend, you know, Daniel Pruitt growing up, I took my wife to go meet him and he was like, man, you know, she's really beautiful. And he's like, where are you from? Plano? She's like, no, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's like, <laughs> Don't meet too many people from Minneapolis and, and Whitesboro, huh? And he's like, w- w- tell me right now, you like, I got a serious question for you, Ford or Chevy? And she's like, I don't know. I was like, just say Ford, just say Ford. She's like, I, I like Ford. He's like, Lusk, I like her. I like her a lot. I was like, I knew you would, DP. I knew you. So grew up there, graduated high school, and then ended up going to AM. My dad was the first person in our family in antiquity to go to college. I was the second person to go to college, and he went to AM. So that's where I chose to go. But that was, I just wanted to go to college. I wanted to get out of town, go to college. But I, beyond that, I really didn't have any dreams or aspirations of anything else because it's all that I knew. Were you into sports? Were you? Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a small three A school. So in that context, you you play everything basically. You play football, basketball, baseball, run track. You know, 
as many people as you can get on the field, they do. So that that was really cool playing the sports with my friends all growing up. You know, we had a pretty decent basketball team growing up and and now they're actually decent at football. But I played football for, you know, three years on varsity. We won like five games. It was so bad. And now they make the playoffs every year. I'm like very proud of these guys. And this is this is awesome. But it was not like that when I was growing up. But you know, they were I had just a lot waiting of fun. for you to leave. They were waiting for me to leave. Exactly. <laughs> it sounds like hard work was something that was instilled in you from a young age. Oh, I mean, from when I can remember, very young, you're saning ponds, you're dragging a sane to go, do, you know, pick fish up. You're putting them on the back of a truck and a tank, and you're delivering them. And I just remember riding in the front seat with my dad in one of those bucket, or not bucket, it was, you know, one of the long benches in the truck driving all over the state with him to deliver these fish. And it was just instilled, you know, you'd get up at, you know, this, not during the week you go to school, but weekends or during the summer, you're up at four or five o'clock loading fish and delivering them. And you got to meet interesting people, you know, landowners and, you know, people who own companies and sold companies, lived out the country. And you knew they were different from you and you knew you worked for them. But it was also, you know, it was very interesting meeting these types of people. I was like, man, I want to do that. You know, how do, how do you do that? But yeah, I mean, it was always work hard. My dad always instilled us. He's like, do you want to be a winner or a loser? <laughs> he asked us all the time. Do you want to be a champion? Like, here's what you have to do to be a winner. And so he like put this mentality in us. I'm like, I don't want to lose. I want, I want to win. You know, I want to be a champion or whatever it is. So like whatever he told me to do, I would do. And it was one of those deals where he, he said, to him, he's like, the most important attribute is, can you be coachable? Can you be coachable? If you can listen to people who are wise and do what they tell you to do and go execute on it, then you'll make it. And if you don't, you won't. And it was very, very simple for me. And so I think about that a lot as I try to grow and learn and gain knowledge, just try to be an open book and surround myself by people that are better than me, smarter than me. And I just listen to what they say and then go do it talking about your dad's, you know, winning mentality. I had a little Talladega Nights flashback. If you're not first, you're last. Is that, is that kind of how it was? Basically? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, Hey, do you, do you want to be a champion? Do you want to be a winner or do you not? It was very binary with him. And I was like, you know, I choose the winning, you know, so whatever that means. And it was hard work. It was discipline. It was humility. And it was those types of things that were instilled at me at a young age that kind of grew from there whenever I got to him and met my friends like you. You've never met a stranger. You've got a lot of charisma. Is everybody in your family as outgoing and boisterous as you are? We're all very similar. My dad is like this, my brother, my sister, my little brother, not so much, but we're all, I mean, it's life of the party. And when you're around for the holidays and you're sitting around, you know, the dinner table or watching, you know, the Cowboys play or whatever, it, it gets lively and fun and people are tell, telling stories and it's a blast. I love my family and and very thankful, but we are, we're very similar in that, you know, the fun loving, but also the work. Like we're all very similar. My sister is a nurse. She um, manages a bunch of nurses here in in Dallas. And then my brother's a re uh, residential real estate agent in Phoenix. And there's just this work ethic and drive and you don't make excuses. There's no way like, no, woe is me or I can't do this or I can't do that. Everybody's like, suck it up. We have to get this done kind of thing. And it's very consistent with those people. <laughs> where, where are you in the birth order? So I'm the, I'm third, third of four, really. So I've got a, a brother who's eight years older than me, a sister who's two years older than me, and then I've got a little brother who's eight years younger than me. So I'm number, number three. Okay. 
And did everybody leave Whitesboro? Yeah, my brother left right after high school, moved to California. My sister ended up moving out of town as well. And then and then me. And then, yeah, so no one, no one lives there anymore. My dad sold his house about two years ago and moved to Granbury. When he was a little kid, his parents had a place on the Brazos River near Granbury. And that's where he grew up and learned to love fish. That's why he wanted to go to A&M. And it's where he really drew up a passion from there. And so he's like, that's where I want to spend the last chapter is where I spent the first chapter. So he bought a place out by Lake Granberry and uh, he lives out there on the, on the Brazos river now, but no one, no one lives in Whitesboro anymore. All right. You mentioned earlier that the goal growing up was just get out of town and you went off to A&M. What did you want to do? I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got there. I was actually, it was I was really nervous that I was going to fail because I was like, you know, small town kid, I met all of these people who were just excellent. I joined the Corps Cadets. And so that was pretty wild and full of discipline, which I needed it. Whenever I was in high school, I was a lifeguard at the Whitesboro Public Pool. And this guy, Bob Jewell, owned the local daycare. And he's like, hey, Lusk, here you're going to A&M. Are you going to be in the Corps? I was like, absolutely not. And uh, he's like, why not? I was like, man, I, I just, that sounds hard. I was like, I don't want to do that. He's like, okay, go home tonight, and you're going to put a T-chart together of all the positives and the negatives of the core. I was like, okay. So I wrote down the positives were that I would uh, stay in shape, that I would make my grades because they make you study. And I thought that the girls would like the uniform. So that was like what I based my decision <laughs> on. And um, What was in the negative column? Negative was like, can't sleep in, don't get to hang out with the people that I want to. It was just stuff that didn't matter when I got down to it. And the fact that he just challenged me to think about it. I was like, okay, I'll go do this. And did, I mean, I didn't know, I wasn't, didn't know ROTC. I didn't know what to expect. I just thought like more discipline and boy, were my eyes open when I got there. But I don't know what I expected. I didn't have great expectations other than getting out of Whitesboro and trying to achieve something bigger. When I think about life, I think a lot about legacy and I think about my grandfather and then my dad and how this guy got the ball down the field as far as he could, and then my dad did, and then I'm getting as far as I could down the field, and then my, my kids will pick it up and take it. And so I, th I think a lot about that, but I, w I was just trying to get to a place that I'd grown up going to football games, and that I love the atmosphere, and I love the people, but I didn't know really what I wanted. A lot of people didn't go yeah. in, and <laughs> a lot of people, even years afterward, didn't know what they wanted, uh, and I would actually put myself in that category. Real quick, talk just a little bit about the Corps Cadets for people that may not know what that is. Are you guys all in the Army now or, or what? So the Corps Cadets is an ROTC program as part of uh, Texas A&M. I'm making this number up, but it's somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 people. So a large, per, a small percentage of the university, but very important for the image of the university. I would say that 25 to 35% take military contracts. It's, it's a decision you make after your sophomore year to do that. I did not take a contract, but a lot of my friends did. So you, it's very regimented during the day where you have morning formation and workout and then breakfast and you have classes during the day and then you come back and do more workout, learning and training and all those things, formation, go study, go to bed every day, a lot of drill and ceremony, things like that. And you bond some very significant relationships just because of the trials that you go through. and you think about like the, the harder things that you do with other people, the closer those bonds typically uh, come together. And so that's what I found. And, and that, I mean, when I first started, when they're recruiting you, 
like, oh, it's awesome, everything. I remember my first day, my commanding officer was a guy named Scott Montier. And I walked up and I was just got out of fish camp, which is uh, basically, it's a camp before you go to A&M to teach all the traditions. And I got off the fish camp bus and I came into my dorm and I was like, hey, Scott. And they were like, shut up and get on the wall. And I was like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and I, I remember I was wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and some frayed shorts and some like Doc Martin sandals or something. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and then they shaved my head and I got yelled at every day. And I was like, man, I hate this. I, wanna, I wanted to quit like six times, but that was not in the playbook of how I grew up. If you started something, you finished it. And so made it through my my freshman year and was like, okay, I've got this. And, and you don't even feel like you're part of the university because all your friends are having fun and doing all these things and you're not, you're just basically doing push-ups. And then you realize like you are the image of the university. Uh, and you're like, man, I didn't, you don't realize it until you do that first march in. And you're like, this is pretty awesome. This is pretty awesome. When you say that you are the image of the university, certainly being in the core, totally get that. But you actually had some other pretty prestigious things and you literally were the image of the university. You were in Parsons Mounted Cav, you were a Ross volunteer, and you were a Fighting Texas Aggie Yell leader. Well, I, well, one minor correction, I was in the Cav, but I was not a Ross volunteer. I didn't go out for the RVs. I went out for Aggie Men's Club instead of the RVs, which they did not like. But I was like, hey, I love these guys. I want to go do it. I always felt that I just love the Cav. I'm from the country. Like, I loved being out there. And, you know, Parsons Mounted Cavalry is the mounted unit that is part of the Corps of Cadets. And they march in before the games and they all the horses are on Fiddler's Green, which is off campus. And it's a very hard unit. It's a very hard unit. It's, it's, it's basically twice as hard in terms of discipline than your freshman year. And so maybe 30 guys go out for it and 20 of them make it. And so I looked at that going, I see those guys wearing that uh, yellow cord and I want to be a part of that group because those are some bad guys in a good way. And I had a lot of respect for them. So I went out for that. And then into my sophomore year, I got elected for junior yell leader and then got reelected senior yell leader. And so it was, it was a dream for me. I mean, there was no legacy. There was, I didn't know anybody. You go through a, a system in core block where you're selected within the core cadets and then you run in the general election um, against folks who are not in the core that want to run a campaign and so to win that was a life-changing experience for me. Changed my whole life in terms of image on the, you know, at the at the university, but also like the relationships that I've been able to develop the rest of my life. It put me on a different trajectory. I'm sure it's opened all kinds of doors. I mean, the the Yell Leader network in and of itself is a whole bunch of guys that have gone on to do a lot of big, amazing things. And But the exposure that you got being a yell leader just had to have compounded and opened up all kinds of doors to you. Well, I'm 42 years old and people still introduce me as a yell leader. <laughs> For hearing out Aggies, hey, this John, he was a yell leader. I was like, yeah, 20 years 20 ago. 20 years ago. <laughs> and oh. our teams were terrible when I was there. <laughs> Let's not talk about those So days. we beat OU. We beat OU when they were number one when I was a junior. Was Fran coaching? He was. So my junior yell leader year was uh, Coach Slocum's last year, and my senior was Fran's first year. Uh, so my junior year is when we beat Oklahoma, which was like the highlight going to Fish Pond. And still, I still remember that game. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was a big deal, man. Reggie McNeil. Yeah. 
he was actually a student in a class that I was a TA for. Well, you know Dr. Welch. Yeah. I was the TA and Reggie McNeil was in that class. And when he showed up the the next week for class, people were throwing oranges and, and all kinds oh, of stuff. And I bet so, he's getting a standing ovation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did you study in college? I was an ag major. I was ag development. I started out in business and I remember my sophomore year. I made like a 40 on an accounting test. And I was like, uh, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> and then I went and talked to all these guys who were like, you know, leaders in the core. They're like, I'm ag development, ag development. And I was like, well, that sounds good to me. I grew up in the country. I understand agriculture. And I, I loved it. I loved it. And then, you know, when I graduated, I went to work for AT&T uh, here in Dallas. And succession planning was always like, what's ag development? Because I was doing really good in the business, but they were, you know, what, what is this degree? I was like, oh man. So I always felt self-conscious about my my degree, which is very interesting. And so it's really the reason I went and got my MBA was self-consciousness because people were like, man, you can't make it to where you want to be if you don't do this. And now the business I'm in, I'm like, I'm so thankful I was an ag major. It's like, it, it has all come full circle. I totally get what you were saying a minute ago about people were telling you you couldn't rise above a certain level w- without that. But looking back today, do you still buy that? I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. And man, if I was a, I mean, my wife was a finance major. She's a doctor now. She's like pre-med and finance was her major. And she might remember 2% of, you know, what she learned. Same thing with me. I was like, I bought this property out in the country and I'm like, and all I care about right now is like growing grass, growing trees and like flowers and stuff. I'm like, I need to call the Ag Extension off. I wish I would have paid more attention to these classes <laughs> because this is what I actually care about deeply now and I don't really know what I'm doing. And so I don't know that it matters as much as the relationships that you develop. I really think that. And I think like just the university as well that you choose and that network and the people who will help you along. I mean, if you have a work ethic, if you're humble, if you don't make excuses like and you do good work, people will find a spot for it. I mean, that's what I want. That's what I want to hire. Businesses that I've started that's what I look for. I look for that and those people not, are you technically proficient in such and such? I can teach you that. But I'm looking for a specific type of person that I want to hire. And it, it's that. How far post-college did you go get your MBA? I got my MBA whenever I was 28. So six years after I graduated okay. undergrad. You'd gone on from AT&T at that point? No, I was living in Dallas. I was dating my college sweetheart, Kat, who played soccer at a and she was a freshman when I was a senior. And so I lived here and I would drive to College Station every weekend. And, and I remember I went and asked her dad's permission to marry her. And he told me no. And he didn't want her to marry a Southern boy. And I wasn't a doctor or a lawyer, so I wasn't successful. I was smiling and dialing in a cubicle at AT&T. So he's like, no, I don't think so. And so he wanted us to date in the same city. So she moved here with a family And we dated in Dallas while she applied medical school and then got in in Houston. So we moved to Houston in 2008. And that's when I applied and uh, started going to business school at Rice. But I was working during the day and got my MBA at night at Rice. And then from there, I just started to see these people. I was like, man, you've got a really nice house and you have a really nice car. What do you do? And these guys are like, I do finance. I was like, what does that even mean? You do finance. Like, well, I do, you know, wealth management or do sales and trading or do investment banking and the investment bakers like, yeah, we stay up all night, do pitch decks. I was like, man, that sounds lame. And uh, and then the wealth management guys like, develop relationships and investing in the markets. I was like, that's what I want to do. So met a couple guys, did this, and 
I met this guy, Shay Morenz, who's like one of the best human beings in the world. He was the quarterback for Texas back in the early 90s. And he was the managing director at Goldman Sachs. And I interviewed with him and he gave me a job. And it was so funny because he was like, hey, why should I hire you? I was like, well, I look on the on the floor and all I see is Longhorns. I was like, you don't have any Aggies, man. And I was like, I know them all. I was like, you should hire me right now and let's go crush it. And he's like, game on, let's do it, Lusk. And so that's how I got my job at Goldman. And that was out of, so I, I literally like, you know, resigned, gave my 30-day notice at AT&T. 15 days later, I graduated from Rice. And then six weeks later, I started Goldman in New York uh, trading July the 5th of 2011. I want to dig into to Goldman, but first, for people who are considering going and getting an MBA, what advice would you give about that? I would say go to a school. I would go, I mean, when I think about MBAs, it's you're basically going for the relationships and the name on the wall because it provides credibility to whoever you're talking to later. Like nobody cares, you know, how you finished in your class, all of those things. I wouldn't say that I was like, I left Rice and was like, man, I've got all this more more knowledge than I I did. But again, I was just, I was trying to get through it. I was working married, you know, trying to, to execute on that. But when you say, hey, I went to Rice and I've worked at Goldman, you have instant credibility with people, you know, whatever you're doing. So when I tell people when they say, I want to go get an MBA, I was like, just go to go to prestigious school and make a lot of friends. And if you can't, then don't do it. Go work somewhere and get experience, get a great mentor. And that's what I tell, you know, kids anyway. It's like your first job doesn't necessarily matter what you're doing, but it matters who you work for and go work for a great leader and do it for two or three years and learn everything that you can. I like that. So Goldman Sachs, big, big name, very prestigious, and you were doing wealth management there. What what did that mean at Goldman? You basically go get meetings with the rich people and bring in someone who actually knows what they're talking about to talk to the people you got the meeting with as a young person. So it's a lot of networking and, you know, spending time around. I focused primarily on people who were selling companies because you have this thing called a T list, which is a list of names that each person has. And you can't call that person if they're not on your T list. So basically anybody you'd ever read about is already covered by somebody. And so I would just, I went to all my investment making buddies that worked for these smaller shops that were, hey, we're selling this company for 20 million bucks or 50 million bucks or whatever. I'm like, hey, can you connect me with those guys? So I spent a lot of time in Midland. And that's kind of how I built my business was, you know, developing those relationships. And I go back to it. Most of my clients were all, you know, blue collar guys who sold these big oil field service companies that I could just relate with because they were like me from a small town, but they had just hit it big and figured it out. And so it was very different. I really didn't spend much time in the city going after folks, but that was kind of, that's how I built my, that's how I built my business. And going to meeting with these people, the the goal was to get them to move their investments to Goldman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the, at the time, 2011, it was like a few years after 08, Goldman had a bunch of, you know, bad publicity. And, you know, you're just trying to get meetings. And I remember there was this guy who sold this awful service company. And, you know, Goldman's great to tell all your friends. I think it's cool. But at the time, it's very challenging to get clients. I mean, people would call in because they want to work with Goldman and those leads would get distributed to different people. But our job was to go get those meetings. And I remember this guy and I brought him in the office and he was like, all right. He's like, Goldsmith, you guys are investment bank. What kind of investments do you have? And I was like, oh, dude, I'm finally going to get a client because like <laughs> he actually doesn't know who we are. 
And I mean, we are an investment bank, but we were in the wealth management side of it. And so we were able to bring him on as a client. My first client was like 17 million bucks. I was like high five and it was really cool. But yeah, I spent a couple of years there and went to work for a group called Avalon, which uh, spun out of Goldman back in the 90s and then started their own shop. And so I worked for those guys. They're just, they're great guys. I loved working for them. And the culture was like probably what Goldman was like when it was, you know, private. And so, I mean, they were, they were just great. And I did that for a few years and I was like, I was super successful at it. And I was like, man, I can do this on my own. Like I can either make you guys a lot of money or I can go make money for my family. They respected it. I mean, I was, it wasn't like I was a big dog. I'm not trying to portray myself as that, but I was like, I want to go do this on my own. And and, and I'm a terrible employee. I'm terrible at working for people because I'd see the world a certain way and I want to go do it a certain way. I'd rather be told, hey, here's the result I want and then let me go do it the way that I want and then I'll deliver for you. But it's not going to be your typical call 100 people, do this or that. And so I was like, man, I, I never thought that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was just too much of a maverick not to be. And so I ended up figuring out that there's all these guys in wealth management that have their own shops and it's a very fragmented industry. And so it's all based on relationship. Like if one bank had the best results, like everybody would be of that bank. And so nobody does. It's like, it's basically marketing. And so I was like, and there's this industry that will help you, you know, from custodian to compliance to products, all these things, they all support you to go start your own deal. It's like, can you go get clients or not? That's the biggest question. And so I was like, I'm going to go do it. You know, I'd Kat had just finished her, no, she'd finished medical school and was in residency and we didn't know Jackson was born. He was six months old. And I was like, you know what? I made a decision before I was 35 that I was going to go start my own company. And so I was 34 when I left and, and started the investment management business eight years ago. Talk a little bit more though about how did you compete against the the big names like Goldman, Merrill, Schwab? Like these are, these are names, they're household names, they're names that people trust. Why are they going to trust a guy without a big name behind him? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. When I first left, I just didn't know. I mean, I I left going, you know, I want to, I'm going to do this. It's already been done. It's not like I'm reinventing the wheel. I know 20 people right now who've got their own shops who manage 100 million to 2 billion or whatever it is. And I was like, man, if they can do it, I can do it. And basically- so it was a confidence. It was confidence. I just saw how the business worked. I saw how these other other entrepreneurs worked. And I just thought, like, I want to go do this. If you can do it, I can do it. And it's not rocket science. It's literally like, go develop a relationship. And this is what they taught us at Goldman Training. There was this guy, I wish I could remember his name, but he came in and he wasn't wearing a tie. Even Lloyd Blankfein had a tie on. But this guy, he had the, the largest wealth management shop in Goldman. He's from South Africa. And he was like, okay, here's the deal. I got here. I didn't know anybody. Uh, I'm not from this country. I got a credit card and business, and business cards. And I just started calling people. He goes, if I can do it, you can do it. And he used some pretty funny analogies to explain what was going on. And uh, he was like, you know, somebody, you see somebody lose a lot of weight and you're like, well, what did you do? You're like, I just changed my diet and I started exercising. No, but what else did you do? No, I just get up every morning at five and I go work out and I eat healthy. And that's how I did it. And he was like, that's what this job is, diet and exercise. But can you do it? Because most of you will hit the snooze button. Can you get up and go do it? And then at the end, he was like, and do me a favor, write me a bad review so they'll stop asking me to come talk to you guys. I don't like doing this. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I love standing ovation. Like, love this guy. He's like, awesome. 
But when I got on my own, I just did the same thing. I just, I looked for people selling companies, never pitching people who already had wealth. It's a waste of time. And just found those folks that were, that were selling companies. The other thing that I noticed is that entrepreneurs want to see other entrepreneurs succeed. And so guys gave me business that they did not have to do because I was taking a risk. And I'm like, hey, I custody assets at Schwab. You know, I do this, I do this on investing. They're like, well, you can't screw that up. I can see it every day. So I'm going to help you out by giving you a couple million bucks or whatever it is and like get you, because I wanted to see you succeed because I like you. And so it started out like that. And then you just build a track record. And I started doing private investments, not just, you know, the public markets. And so that draws a younger crowd, kind of the 35 to 45, because they're not looking for six to 8% return. They're like, hey, I'd rather give up liquidity and go invest in a, in a private investment that I can't, I'm not getting my money back for five or seven years, but higher expected returns. So we so started doing a lot of those, which is different. And then I, I haven't shown a pitch book in six years. It's all referrals. What I learned is just take care of your clients. Take, I mean, I, I, I don't ever take a salesman. I'm just like, when I meet with someone, I met with somebody last night and it was a referral from a, a client. They already know what to expect. They know what I do, what I don't do. And then it's like, okay, when do we start? It's kind of the conversation. Here's what I'm going to do. It's like an hour and then we go. And so that's kind of how I've said, I've also saw that there was a relationship between the wealth manager and the rich, like rich guy that gets really upset with the wealth manager. There's a codependent relationship. The wealth manager takes it. So the guy doesn't pull the money. So he doesn't lose his fee. And I was like, man, that's, that's pretty jacked up. I was like that. Why would you, why don't you just tell the guy the truth? Well, he's going to pull his money. And I was like, I'm never doing that. Like, I like to sleep at night. And so talk straight, follow through. And if you set those boundaries, the right people will come to you and the wrong people will stay away. Something you said before you kind of dug deeper there was you're a maverick. You don't like doing things. You don't like people telling you how to do things a certain way. And I, I probably said this before on on the podcast, but the only thing I like less than being told what to do is being told how to do it. Does that <laughs> it sound does. right? And, and I tie it together because it's kind of a, there's like this dichotomy in me between being teachable and coachable, but also seeing a way of doing things that I'm sure other people see it, but it's like, I think this works over here versus like checking a lot of boxes so that you can go report to your manager and they feel good. So you have kind of these false metrics that don't really matter at all. And so I'm like, how do we get rid of all of that? And it's hard to do in a large organization. It's very hard to do. The second thing I'd say is if you want to create wealth, you need to own your own company. You've got to own equity in something. And that was my other conviction is like, if I want to go do this, you can't complain. You have guys that have been at these firms for 20 years and they complain, why don't I have equity? Why don't they do this? What are this? I'm like, why don't you go do your own deal? Like what's stopping you right now? It's your monthly expenses. I get it. But like, stop complaining or just go do something different. Go do something about it because you don't want to be that guy who's 45 or 50 years old and trying to stick it to the man. Like, go be the man. You you have the opportunity. And this one entrepreneur told me when I started the company, he was like, you know, you're standing over a cliff and it's really scary. And you look down there and you've got to jump. And he's like, you look over and then finally you jump. And what you realize it was, it wasn't actually a cliff. It was a curb. But most people won't jump. And that's what I found is like people, you work your tail off, you find a niche, you find customers, you take care of those customers, they tell other people, and the thing just goes bananas. Thousand percent. And I love that cliff curb analogy. 
I think it's the fear that holds most people back. And the fear is what you said. It's making making those those monthly expenses, making sure that they're they're covered and paid. You talked about you'd set a goal for yourself that by the age of 35, you wanted to start a business. When did you make that decision? Probably when I was 33. Because <laughs> I was talking to this uh, old guy uh, who owned an EMP company, uh, exploration production company. And uh, Houston, and he said that he started his company when he was 35, and he just challenged me. He was like, hey, by the time you're 35, that's when you need to do it. And I've heard this great Jack Ma, or watch his video. I don't know if you've seen it, where he's like, in your 20s, you should be learning everything you possibly can. Uh, you should be a student, like learning under a great mentor. When you're in your 30s, go try something, because your risk level is very low. By the time you're 40, in your 40s, you should be doing something that you're passionate about. By the time that you're 50, you should be like pouring in and mentoring tons of people. And when you're in 60s, you should be spending all your time with your grandkids. And I think about, and I tell that a lot, I tell the younger folks who work for me and just go, hey, you're in your 20s right now. Like you, I hope you go leave Bird Dog and go start a company and I'll back you like in your 30s. But right now, learn everything you can, develop as many relationships as you can and just be an awesome employee and then go start something when you're in your 30s when the risk is minimal and you can go do it. And so that's kind of how I think about it in those terms. Mentorship is a topic that's come up a ton with our guests. You clearly had a lot of mentors that that spoke into your life along the way. Were those mentor relationships, were they like formal relationships where, you know, Jonathan, we're going to sit down once a week and we're going to talk about, we're going to go through this program? Or was it more about just somebody that was present in your life that that spoke when they saw something that needed to be spoken about? The way that I've gone about it is when there's someone that I meet and respect and want to learn from, I typically pursue them. And again, I, I tell this to kids coming out of college. I'm like, hey, whatever you want to do, go find five people that you respect and email them or call them and say you want to take them out to coffee or lunch. And you're never going to, I know you don't have any money, but like you're never going to pay. They're going to pick it up. But just the fact that you'll go take the initiative to get in front of them. And if they like you, then they'll spend more time with you or they'll help you and connect you and all those things. And so that's been my approach. If there's been somebody that I respected a lot, then I'll pursue them. And if they like me, then they'll invite me, hey, come to this dinner with me or come do this. And then I just ask a lot of questions and just go through things that I'm struggling with, that I'm thinking about, and a lot of like, how do I make good decisions and things like that. And so all of my mentor relationships to this day are informal. It's like, hey, can we go you know, can we go grab dinner on your schedule? I know you're busy, but I'd love to just talk to you for an hour. And they typically always make themselves available. And do you have people that you're now doing that for? Oh, yeah. I would say that the people that work for me are the people that I talk to every day. You know, a couple of them are in their 20s and I teach them everything I possibly can. I, I would say the two groups of people that, I, that I've mentored the most are my kids and my employees that are in their 20s and spend a lot of time with them. And then I've got tons of kids from A&M that call and want, I mean, I talked to these guys who started a company yesterday and we had an hour and 15 minute conversation just about life and business and how to think about things, how to prioritize, who to listen to, who not to listen to, how to make decisions, things like that. And so I mentor, you know, down and get mentored, you know, up as well. You still have your investment business, right? Mm -hmm. That's been going eight, years now, eight seven, years, eight years, something like eight that. Eight years last week, yeah. Okay. What gave you the confidence to make that move? 
it was more like dissatisfaction. You could go back to why did I want to get out of Whitesboro? Why did I want to get out of the corporate world? Just not satisfied. I'm not there. I was like, your boss comes by at three o'clock and you're acting like you're busy and you're done at 11. And I wish I was like taking a nap or working out because I'm tired. And then, you know, getting back up at four and going to meet somebody for coffee or drinks and dinner and then going, that's what I want to do. I mean, I'm, that goes back to my like, this is how I think it should work. Like, I think you should get up and work out and go meet somebody for breakfast and do all your calls and go to lunch and then go, for me, I'm like, I, sleep, I need like an hour nap or whatever because I'm like going very fast. And then I'll re-energize and like get after it and then go meet more people. But I find myself like acting like I'm busy when my boss walks by and sending him reports that don't matter about things that don't matter that aren't really moving the needle. And I was just like, man, there's got to be a better use of time to actually just do the job and spend time with people that I really love and enjoy being around and building a business around that. I don't know how I'm going to do it. There's no guarantee success. It could fail. And I could have to come back and ask for my job and just live in a situation that I don't enjoy. But like the pain is too much for me to to stay. And so I have to go. And then when you start the company and then it's successful and takes off, you're like, man, I made it. And then I think a lot about, and even in the bird dog venture, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is you you don't want to miss out on the adventure, especially when you're like, this is a startup. I hope my business works. What if it doesn't? Am I going to lose money, lose investors' money? I mean, I didn't have any investors in the wealth management business, but what if it doesn't work? Reputation, I'm all in. All these things that you battle against, you're like, I don't care. I'm going all in. I'm going after it all in. And from the first business to now, I just think about do not miss that opportunity of facing fears of going through tough times and enjoying the moment because you hear about guys all the time that have big exits and they're like, man, I just missed the grind and how hard it was and, you know, things like that. When you came home one day and told your wife, Kat, that you wanted to go off and start your own investment firm, what was her response? Well, she knows that I pray about everything, that I seek wisdom about all major decisions. And I talked to her and just, and she knew, I mean, she knew that I needed to go do it myself. And she was in the middle of medical school and then going into residency. So she was super focused on that. And our expenses were very low. I mean, we lived in an 800 square foot house in Houston and had a couple of dogs and a bunch of student debt. But I was like, I've got to go do this. And she's like, okay. And that's how she's always been when I've talked to her about it. And I'm like, I'm certain of this. Like, we have to go do this. She's like, okay, go do it. I'm here and we're doing this together. So she's always been solid. She's solid. All right. Bird Dog. Yep. What is it? So Bird Dog is a marketplace connecting landowners with hunters. Uh, The genesis of this is that two of our friends, Evan Loomis and Jason Ballard, started a company called Icon Build. It's a 3D printing company. And they took some money off the table on a recent fundraise. And Ballard bought a ranch in Terlingua down in Big Bend. And I'm managing their money for them. And uh, Ballard's like, hey, Lusk, it was like uh, after the Christmas party, he's like, okay, here's the deal. I need you to not just manage my money, but I need you to do my taxes and manage my ranch. And I was like, well, I don't do any of that because that's a lot of work. And that does not sound fun to me. He's like, well, just double my fee. I was like, uh, what did you just say? I was like, let me, let me update my resume. I'm in the ranch management business. I was like, that's amazing. Let's do it. And so I was trying to find like an Airbnb for hunting to put his ranch on so we could show some income in his LLC. That was the, that was basically what I was trying to do. 
And I scoured the earth and I could not find a good solution. And I went back to him and said, hey, there's no Airbnb for hunting. You can't imagine there's no technology in this business. And like 95% of the land in Texas is privately owned. You have all of these ranches. You only get to hunt if you're invited or you own a ranch. It's like, hey, Scott, you want to come hunting? Well, it's like January the 8th. And, you know, you're like, well, that doesn't work for me or whatever. And here's a list of all the things you can't shoot. You're like, okay. But my dad said we can shoot hogs, you know. Okay, that's fun. Yeah, that's great. But what if you had a central place that you could go to and choose what species you wanted to hunt, what price, what geography where you could go? And I liken it to like if there are golfers out there, imagine a world in which there were only private golf courses and you only got to play if you're invited. We're effectively creating a public tea time system for hunting. So I can choose where I want to go, what date I want to go, how much I want to spend, and then we're getting these guys into it who are just falling in love with it. And it's a lot of guys who didn't grow up hunting like me. I didn't grow up hunting. My dad, I mean, I, I worked in the fish business and my dad, you know, he traded fish for one hunt when I was 14. And so I got to shoot one buck. And so I've got kids now and I'm like, well, I want them to grow up as this part of our family tradition, but I don't even know what I'm doing. And so, and what I found is there's a lot of guys like that, that have got some capital to spend, want to go hunt maybe not know what they're doing, want their kids to get into it. So we do a lot of hunter's ed where the kids are in the front row, the dads are in the back row. The dad's like, I know what I'm doing. I'm like, no, you don't. And neither do I. So it's cool. And then we teach the kids and teach the dads. And then you go shoot shotguns and rifles. Hey, dad, you get up here and load it, you know, and then he starts shooting. And then you open up the laptop and you have a father-son hunt. And it's just been very, very successful. And in the spirit of not growing up in it, I had a view of what I wanted my experience to be like. And I could, I was like, I want to show up to a ranch. I want to go sight rifles in, go hunt. And then I want to have a great meal, sit around the campfire, smoke cigars with all my buddies and, and like laugh and talk and go deep and then go hunt again, have great meals. And I was like, man, I'd love for there to be some country music aspect of this. It'd be fun to have somebody playing. The month after Taylor Jackson and I started this business, by the way, so uh, and then Ballard backed us. So Taylor and I, Taylor was in the construction business and was like, he's, hey. He's your co-founder. He's my co-founder. Taylor's my co-founder. So he was in, in the construction business and he was looking at it from a perspective of, hey, I want to take all my subcontractors hunting, but it's hard to find places. And I was coming at it from a stewardship perspective from, I've got these wealth management clients who've got ranches and they need to sell more hunts to generate income. So Ballard said, hey, Taylor's been talking about this. You guys get together. I'm going to, I'm going to fund you. And then the next month I was hunting with Colt McCoy and Colt was like, Hey, I love this idea. I want to invest in the company. And so he and I become really good buddies. And so he was my second investor. So we raised some capital and got in our trucks and just started signing ranches up. And basically you've got all of these ranches, tens of thousands of them in Texas that already have lodges, food guides, and game. They just need help on marketing. It may be a website that's 20 years old and call for pricing. It's very challenging for the hunter to decipher why does this animal cost $3,000 and this costs $2,500, the same animal, what are the amenities, things like that. It's just like Airbnb or VRBO, but for hunting. And so we just, you know, I read Brian Chesky talk about how he would go send a professional photographer in early days of Airbnb and the, and the photos sold. So right when we started, we got a professional photographer, photographed all the ranches, drone footage, all the things, wrote descriptions, talked to the biologist about what game could be harvested. And then we put it on a website and we built it on Shopify um, originally. And 
you know, our first year we had 112 hunters come through in like four months. And, you know, we just finished our first full year and it was around 200 hunters, but all, everybody starts out shooting a doe or something smaller and everybody goes up for bigger animals. So higher margin stuff, but it's been really cool. Back to the country music, I called Colt and I was like, hey man, I've got an idea. We should get some country music singers out here on the ranches and just play private concerts and things like that. I was like, well, who do you know? He's like, I know everybody, man. I was like, well, let's go. And so he hooked me up with Pat Green. And so I brought on Pat as a partner, gave him equity in the business. And so uh, he's been great uh, playing shows for us. And then brought on Roger Crager, same way. And then do a lot of stuff with Josh Abbott, who's wonderful. And so we've got this. And then we've got a bunch of guys who are in the Texas country music scene, but not those big names, but phenomenal, phenomenal musicians, singers, songwriters that will come. And it's, you know, corporate groups who like, hey, I've got eight or 10 guys and I want to go do this hunt. Can we get a musician to play on Saturday night or something like that? Not Saturday, because all these guys are busy on the weekends. But if you did a deal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then they're going to come and do that. So uh, it's been, I'll tell you what, we're having a lot of fun. It is, it's a blast and it's fun. It's not only fun, it's really cool to see the lives get changed on these ranches when you can uh, get guys off their phone and onto the ranch and to go hunt, especially the father-son stuff where you're creating a rite of passage for them that they otherwise couldn't figure out how to do. And they don't know how big of a deal it's going to be until it happens. And so the co- the comments are not like three stars, like all five star. And hey, this was life-changing. Thank you so much for what you guys have done. And so we see that there's a huge purpose behind what we're doing, building this company. You talk about being a maverick and wanting to kind of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but break the rules. And man, it sounds like with this, you've done that. I mean, there weren't a lot of rules to begin with, but like you've, you've really pushed the boundaries and, and taken it, created something out of nothing that is truly, truly unique. I listened to a podcast recently where the founder of Calendly, I don't know if you're familiar with Calendly, but it's a calendar system that helps people book meetings with one another. Him creating Calendly came out of his frustration with the fact that he needed to schedule meetings with different people and and it was so hard. There was nothing nothing out there to, to help him do that. Your thing was birthed out of necessity, right? You, you had this need, you had this frustration. It amazes me how many problems there are still out there that don't have a solution. Do you think beyond Bird Dog and are there other ventures that you're thinking about getting into? Are there other problems in the marketplace that you, you see that you want to go solve for? Most of the problems that I see can be solved within Bird Dog. So I, I didn't seek this out going, I'm looking for another company to start. I mean, my life was really good. And now it's really hard, like working 12 to 15 hour days. But when I look into this industry, it was out of necessity. I just couldn't believe there was no technology in the hunting world. I mean, you got websites that connect outfitters with hunters, but there's, you know, there was no real websites that connected landowners with hunters. And I knew the landowner really well from doing my wealth management business. I mean, these were all the guys that I was talking to. And so within that... I've noticed a lot of things like the companies that will start, you know, it'll be within bird dog, but there are things like the animal live trade. Like Texas is like Africa, basically, where you've got all these species of animals that are bred and then sold from ranch to ranch. And then people go hunt them. And a lot of these species exist, like are not extinct because of hunters. And so they breed all these animals, but there's no technology within the buying and selling of the animals. So, hey, we just sold 20 oryx hunts. We need to reload. Can you help me find 
Oryx. And then you call a bunch of people and then you're like, you finally find some and then you hope that the guy's trustworthy to get it there. And then you hope some of them don't die. And you're like, man, this is super inefficient. And so what I've noticed is as we talk to our customers on the landowner side, they tell us all of their problems. I mean, the other one I would say is you have a lot of landowners who own 20 to 100, maybe 200 acres, and they live in the cities. They live in Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and the pipe busts on their well. And they're like, okay, what do you have to do? You've got to call from Dallas like five different plumbers until somebody can come get it fixed, or I need my my fence fixed. I need to build a pond. I need a pole barn put up, whatever it is. Like the services out there are very fragmented. And so at some point, not right now, but we'll create, you know, think of like the Angie's list for rural landowners. So the reason that people do good work is if they can do their job and then they then there's accountability, like you're publicly rated and reviewed. I think about myself as an example, we've got a little place in Washington County. It's like 26 acres. I go up my barn yesterday and one of my pipes is busted at the well. And so I use that as a real example. I'm like, and water's going everywhere. And I've turned all the valves off and I can't think of what to do. And I call two different plumbers. And thankfully one guy was like, hey, I can come out there. We happen to just finish a job. But if not, you'd be lucky to get somebody out there that day. And he was like, hey, you know, turn the electricity off to the, you know, hit the breaker. I was like, oh, great. I didn't think about that. So I turn off, the water stops fine. He fixes it. But I live there. Imagine if you don't live there or you have a caretaker or something like that. Then imagine like going into a website and we call it like a landowner portal that we're building where the landowners can go in. They can black out their dates when they're at their ranches. They can buy and sell animals um, when they need to reload. And then you also say, hey, I need a plumber. And guess what? The top 10 plumbers with all five-star ratings in the surrounding three counties come up and you message them and they pick up the job you know, like an Uber driver or whatever. And they're like, hey, I'll be over there. Because whenever your pipe's busted, you're not really negotiating on price. You're like, hey, I just need it fixed as soon as possible. And so that's the next thing. I think there's no real service component, especially for those ranches that are 20 to 100 acres who don't have a dedicated ranch manager. But you could put together a platform for fractional ranch managers, for people who mow and trim your trees and clean your house and if you don't live there, have it prepared when you and your family and friends want to go. It's all fragmented. These guys are on the phone 10 hours at a time before they can find somebody to come spray the weeds on their pond. I see a lot of things that are ancillary to what we're doing as you start out with hunting, but then you can become a SaaS company for that landowner to go, hey, if you want to sell hunts on your ranch, you can. If you don't, Bird Dog offers these other, this other marketplace, this you know, kind of business to business for you. I think about that. As a business leader, business owner, you got lots of ideas. How do you prioritize what you're going to do next? How quickly my design product and engineers can work (laughs) and how much capital I have. I mean, I've got a lot of ideas, but I also have a board of directors. And so we have quarterly meetings and kind of go through, here's what we did. Here's kind of the vision and Jason Ballard's on our board, probably the best board member you could ever want. He's he's a total, he's unbelievable. We have this law firm for startups in Austin. This guy's like, Ballard left our board meeting. And the guy was like, hey, you guys want some honest feedback? After the meeting, he just, he didn't say a word the whole meeting. He's just, you know, taking notes. He's like, I was, for a guy who sits on 20 or 30 of these a quarter, he's like, 
that's the best I've ever seen of any company I've been involved in. And what what made it so? He said that Ballard was command and control. He said most board members are like finance guys who really don't think about operating, but they just want to see the numbers and all that stuff. And Ballard's whiteboarding, going, okay, here's what the organizational chart needs. Here's where we're weak. We need to go find a product person for the hunter side, a product person for the landowner side. You need three engineers for each of these. If you're not willing to commit three, you don't care about the product. All right, we need to identify a product person to report to the CTO. Okay, the next group is the sales team. Here's how it's broken out. Okay, admin, this is our CFO, and he's going to handle all documents for hiring, all financials, all those things. Okay, we got it. All right, Lusk, your job by the next board meeting is to go interview 60 landowners and hunters. You're going to get 15 new ranches on the website. I want you to add fishing to the website, and then I want to do a, a deal code for anybody who signs up for a hunt. Give them 250 bucks. And they give them another hundred for each friend they have that signs up. All right, that's your to-do list. He goes, I'm just a board member. You don't have to do anything I'm telling you, but this is my point of view. So a board member who's actually whiteboarding and strategizing with you, he's got a, I said, well, how did you learn that, Ballard? I told him at dinner, I was like, man, yeah, I wasn't impressed because this is how you always are. Like, I just thought this par for the course, but this guy was very impressed. He's like, I learned it from a guy named Jason Portnoy, who's, I think he was like the first CFO for Facebook or something like that. He's the PayPal mafia and just a stud. And he's on Jason's board. He's like, this is how Portnoy does all our board meetings. And so I've learned it from him. And I was like, man, that was, I'm so thankful for you to have you. And so how do I go back to your question about how do you take all these ideas and really stay focused is those board meetings are super helpful. I, I need like three tasks to go get done. Like what can I go execute? And where does that fit in with the vision for right now? because I tend to live in the future and a big area of opportunity for me is to be present and to go like, what do we get? We got to go execute on this now. And then we just do 30 day sprints before the next board, 30 days or sorry, set 90 day sprints. What are we going to do in the next 90 days? We've got to get it done. And all of our KPIs, key performance indicators are all driven towards those goals to achieve. And then you go present the next board meeting and say, okay, let's update the org chart. What do we need next? And that's been super helpful to have that structure with Taylor, my co-founder on the board in Ballard. You've touched on this a couple of different times and, and you've referenced Uber and, and Airbnb. You are a two-sided marketplace. You've got to find the, the landowner and you've got to find the, the hunter, hmm. which is harder of the two. So I think in the, in the, if you were to come into this with no relationships in the state of Texas or wherever that you're starting it from, the landowner is the hardest part because these get like the typical landowner is a guy who sold a big company or owns a big company, bought this land. It's recreational. They all lose money. I mean, if you have a huge cattle operation, you might break even or make a little bit of money, but I'd say 99% of them are in the red. They're recreational. They're fun for family and friends. They're typically in a trust. There's five kids in the trust. One kid likes to hunt. The rest don't care. And everybody gets capital called for property taxes, feed bills, and insurance. And so you may get a sibling who's like, hey, we need $50,000. Like, well, I don't, that's not my ranch. Well, yeah, you own 20% of it. So like send the money. And so, and then they've got to generate income because they're in their LLCs. And so they're either cattle, hay, hunting operations, whatever they're doing to generate revenue. So through our relationships and really our investors and our cap table who are really tied in with this. And just as we talk on podcasts and meet different people, Somebody's like, hey, my cousin's got a ranch. My uncle's got a ranch. Hey, these guys want to sell some hunts or they've already got a commercial operation. We want to 
put our ranch on bird dog. And so we've been very fortunate to get ranches. We've got about 30 ranches in the last 15 months. Uh, we're going to add another 35 this year because we think that, that that capacity, you could have, again, a fan of metrics. Like, oh, we got 300 ranches. doesn't matter if you're not feeding these people business and they're happy. And I'd rather have 65 people love us than, you know, a handful of them not like us because, hey, well, it's not working out for us. So we've been very fortunate on the ranch side. The interesting thing about the hunter side is the the two groups that we really focus on are high net worth individuals because our experiences are premium. You sell a premium product. We sell I mean, a, getting yeah. to sit around the campfire and drink bourbon and smoke cigars with Pat Green. That's not an everyday kind of thing. And when we put these opportunities on Facebook, we hear about it. It's like, that's highway robbery. I'd never pay for that. I'm like, I know, man, I know. <laughs> We'll get there as as you scale ranches and then you can show all these ranches like who's paying what for what. You have all the data on the back end to go, hey, the average 150-inch whitetail is going for $4,500. And so you can adjust your pricing accordingly, accordingly, Mr. Landowner. Then they can take it down to $3,500. And then like it's supply and demand, you know, increased supply and then prices come down. But the other group outside of the those individuals are corporate groups. And there are corporate groups that have budgets that are 20000 to half a million dollars to take clients hunting in the construction business, oil full service companies, whatnot. And they usually go to the same ranch. And so we spend a lot of time going, like setting up booths at different events for oil full service companies, for exploration production companies or whatever it is at these events. And then they're like, oh man, we can go do this. Like, hey, we're going with you guys this year. And then you get that repeat business where they'll bring eight or 10 guys on a trip. And if you can get 50 of those a year, you break even in this business. And so we've focused really heavily on those groups of people. I also think that we launched two years ago. And then last year with the rate, you know, interest rates where they're at, I'm like this couldn't be like the harder year to ever operate because everybody's like, oh, my budget's cut. Instead of 10 guys this year, I've got to bring three. I'm like bring them and we're going to knock it out of the park for them. And when it comes back, we'd love your business. And we'd love to, you know, this more like, no, definitely we'll be back. It's just budgets are down. And so those are the, I don't know that the hunters are the the hardest part, but they are whenever, whenever the economy's down, but we still fought through it and had a really good year and developed some really important relationships. So I'd say the hunters this year were harder to get than the ranches, but at the same time, when hunters aren't hunting, ranchers need more support. So we were able to like really level up all of our ranches because everybody went from, if you had 50 guys, you know, two years ago or three years ago, you might've had, you know, 30. And so like, hey, we need help selling more hunts, which has allowed us to get more ranches on the platform. Is it safe to say with your your first business, your investment business, it was not a capital intensive thing to get off the ground? Yeah, it just took grit and, you know, you needed some money to go buy coffee for people and tell the story and maybe, you know, go print pitch decks. You didn't have to raise money to start that one. That was interesting because I partnered with a family early on uh, who gave me working capital. And then I bought them out after a couple of years. But the working capital is really just a hedge against my fear because I was afraid of failing. And so I was like, if I could partner with this family, it'd be really good. But never in a kind of a raising a, you know, safe or convertible note or a, a price round, I never raised money. I mean, I didn't, you know, Ballard coached me up on all this. He was like, hey, you got to get a C-Corp and you got to do this and you're going to go raise money. And this is the law you're going to use. And here's how it works. And so it's uh, in the venture capital world. And we've raised a little bit of venture capital. Uh, Roger Seeley here in Dallas is one of my partners, uh, Morrison Seeger. 
They're awesome. And so they're our one venture capital partner. We've got another special purpose vehicle group that came in and the rest are all individuals. But it's definitely kind of a, a venture capital structure of raising, you know, rounds of capital to grow the business to eventually, you know, grow a really, really big company. Is it stressful having these investors and how active are they in terms of what they want to see the organization do? What I thought about raising money from investors was um, when I first started was, you know, am I going to get feedback? Is it going to be talking to a ton of people when I need to be operating the business? The way I thought about, it's very similar to how I thought about my wealth management business. Like I'm not working with any jerks, you know, there's no, I don't care how much money you have, I'm not working with you. And so you can't do that at first. You got to take whatever you can when you're in that business, but eventually you can do it the way that you want to do it. I thought the same thing about investors. I was like, I only want to work with people that I really like, that we have a high level of trust and they can help us grow the business. So these investors are all guys who own companies or running companies or own ranches, and they're all accretive to our success. Like if I go to those guys right now, like, hey, I need five more ranches, they're going to connect. Or, hey, I need to, we need three more groups to go hunting with us. Okay, hey, I got this company that we work over here, their construction company, I'll introduce them to us. And you just remind them and they can help you actually grow the business versus like, let's just say it's a real estate company. You give that those guys money, you really can't add any value. You just hope to get some return from them from what they know that what they're doing. This is actually different where these people can be involved. So I've focused on people who can help us grow the business, who know the industry. And really it's just a business that attracts those same type of people. Like they either get it or don't. Like I pitched this to probably 300 people and I've got, I bet you about 15 investors and then two of those are SPVs um, that have got, you know, 10 to 15 in each of those. And most people said no, you know, and then, but the people who said yes were like, I totally get this. This is a brilliant idea. Like, why is no one doing this? I'm all in. And so when I'm raising money, I don't push it hard. I just tell the story. And if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, no big deal. But usually they'll say, talk to these three other people. And that's how I've gone about it. I mean, I just I live with open hands and the right people will come. It's like a mentor of mine was like, you know, he's like, I imagine myself sitting in a chair every day. And then I look around a room and there's a door over there and I go open it. And if it's if it opens and I walk through it and I explore what's in there. And if it's locked, he goes, when I was younger, I'd kick it down because I wanted it so bad. And then it would never work out. It's what I wanted so bad, but it's not what it was supposed to happen. And so I think about that in life in general, whether it's, you know, investors or ranches or, I mean, there's a hundred decisions a day that you can try to force. But if you don't, if you explore, but not force, then things typically work out the way they're supposed to. You've got two separate companies, at least. Yeah, just two. And a family. Yep. Man, how do you balance your time? Uh, It's very challenging with Bird Dog. And it's something that I talk to my wife a lot about because there's this aspect that you have to be on the road and you have to be on these hunts. You have to understand what the landowner wants because they're all unique. You got to understand what the hunters want and then resolve problems while they're there. So there's an element, year one, I went on 22 hunts. Like I had to be there, but I also felt this guilt and shame of being away from my children because like, hey, when are you going to come home? When are you going to do, when are you going to hang out with us? And there's all these country music songs that you listen to like, my dad wasn't there and, you know, whatever. And like, oh, I don't want to be a country music song. <laughs> and so I thought about it a lot in year one and just decided the folks that work for me who don't have kids or aren't married, I'm like, hey, you're going to go on all these hunts 
And I just have to trust that, you know, you can pull it off and you can identify things that need to be resolved. But when I think about the balancing, you have to prioritize and you have to really take a look at what your priorities are and then put those first. And for me, it's like my walk with the Lord. Number two, it's my wife, it's my children, and then it's, you know, my friends and then business. And so I'll write it out. Where like where am I actually allocating my time? And am I staying true to those first principle things? Like you have to. And if I'm not, which no one does, you just go, okay, it's time to recalibrate. And I'm going to do it right now. And then I'm going to go say it out loud. Instead of keeping it in, I'm going to go tell my wife. I'm going to go tell my children. I'm going to go tell my friends. I'm going to go tell the colleagues. And then that something about saying it out loud has got a lot of power. And then you just get back up. Like right now, you know, I went on maybe two hunts this year. And so I've spent a ton of time with my children, with my wife, very attuned to them. Not just like know about them. I know them. I know them really well. There's just joy in that. And now I'm in a season this next month where I'm on three different hunts. I'm here in Dallas for Dallas Safari Club and it's time to work. And I told them, hey, this is what I've got to go do. And here's the expectations, but I'll be back. But I just want to get to the end of my life, you know, knowing that I kept those first principles first and I took care of my wife and my kids because it goes back to my family, like a broken family. And then like getting the ball down the field is like, we've been married for 15 years together for 20 three kids. And it's like, let's go for 50 or 60 or whatever we can. And then I want to see these kids grow up to be awesome human beings. And it's just that bird dog and the wealth management business are just a way to do that. Doors that open up that I, they just opened up. Um, but it's not like I'm like, oh man, I love finance and I'm a, I'm passionate about hunting and all these things. It's like the Lord's called me into it is the best way I can tell you, Scott. And I'm, and I'm going to go deliver. What hasn't worked out like you expected it to? Working with friends is really hard. Working with friends is very challenging. Or just working with people who, even if they're not friends, let's just say it's a colleague, like they have different interests from what your interests are. And so let's say you have like a a supplier that, you know, I'm making this up, but, you know, someone who sells shirts or something like the outdoor shirts, and they want to partner with you. And you really like them a lot. And you're like, man, I need shirts for this, but it's a bad allocation of capital or, you know, I'm not going to do it and you're going to be mad at me because like, I really want to do it. It'd be big for you and your business, but I can't do it. Okay. Conflicts of interest are very challenging and there's a lot of them. The other one would be like, when you meet these people and when you're building these companies, you don't know exactly what you need. I don't know anything about engineering and Taylor and I found it. Neither one of us are engineers. And so he's like, Hey man, take what I'm getting paid and let's go find an engineer and I'm going to be on the board and like, let's go show a ton of humility on that. But we didn't know that. We didn't know that. We just thought there was like some white label thing you could buy off the shelf and do this and just use relationships and things like that. And then you have these different groups of people who are like, hey, this is how much it costs. This is what you should expect. And then it's completely different from what you thought. And then you have to fire them. And you're like, man, I really like you as an individual, but like we can't keep you because it's not right for the business. And I've got investors. If it was like just me by myself, I'd be like, okay, I'd be a little bit more compassionate. But when you have other people's capital, it's a different ball game of going, and it makes you better because those are the right decisions you ought to make. Like you're a fiduciary, just like a fiduciary in this one business, you're also a fiduciary in this other one. And you have to make decisions that are in the interest of your investors. That's something that surprised me. I can't remember the question you asked, but that's been hard. That's very hard because people get their feelings hurt. But at the end of the day, you know you're doing the right thing and you can sleep at night. 
how many people do you have on the bird dog team today? We have got seven people on the bird dog team today. All right. Earlier in your career, when you were at AT AT&T or when you were at Goldman, did you manage people? My first job out of college was managing a team at AT AT&T. I was in their like leadership development program or manager program where they put you in an area for 12 months. And right when you under like the training wheels come off, they move you to another spot. So my first job out of college was managing 12 network engineers. And they were ladies who when uh, they would make a change out, like on a telephone pole or something, they would call in and these ladies would type in the change. And it was a union environment too, which was very interesting. They were like, hey, the LDP pro- program, they called them, they called us little dumb people. And uh, they're like, That's hey. opposed to leadership development program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just, I laughed it off and they're like, hey, you just sit back and don't try to be a hero and we'll make you look really good. I was like, all right, let's do it. And so I'm just like bringing people coffee and like, you know, hey, let's win a you know a gift card to so-and-so. I mean, I was just like out there keeping everybody happy and they crushed it for me. But I managed teams and then I, I did that. And then I managed a big sales team while I was getting my MBA. It's actually the reason I could study all the time because AT&T had just bought Singular Wireless and they were integrating it into AT&T Wireless. And there was no integration between businesses that had AT&T landlines and internet and wireless. So like, hey, we want you to manage the team that goes into all these businesses that have wireline business and sell them cell phones. And oh, by the way, we're going to give you 15 of the best singular AT&T wireless salespeople to come over here and work for you. And so we crushed it. I mean, I literally have sales team meetings in the morning, like just putting out fires for people, solving problems. And I'd study, you know, during the day and then go to school at night. And thanks to those people, like we made, we all made Diamond Club, got to go to Vegas. So it was like, your top sales people, I was like, oh, it was cool. But, you know, thankfully, I've been managing teams for, you know, a long time. Is it different managing when it's your business than when you were at AT&T? Does it feel different? Do, thing, you, do you manage them different? You know what I've thought a lot about at leadership now that you're like older and have gained a lot of wisdom from people that I've surrounded myself with is that you actually have something to to teach them, the younger folks. You have something that you can, like wisdom you can part on them. And the leadership is interesting. Like the, the guys I was talking to yesterday started this apparel company. And they're like, we only manufacture in the USA and we're giving 12% of our profit away, our, our revenue to nonprofits. And we've talked to all these leaders and they told us what a bad idea it was, but they had a lot of conviction around it. And I was like, hey man, don't listen to them. Like you go do your deal. And if this makes it big, stick to your guns and what you're building and just go build it because like you're fully committed to it and you're young and you're hungry and you don't know what's going to happen. You could be the next big whatever, but don't ever be discouraged. And I think like leadership now is a lot about those. I just think about the things that I've learned about decision-making, like talk about this a lot, but Terry Looper is a mentor of mine and he has like this process of like how he makes decisions and he's wrote a book on it and you know, the first is like, consult your friend Jesus is what he says first. He's like, you know, I was talking about bird dog, like we're blowing and going, we're crushing. He's like, hey, Lord, he goes, hey, Lusk, have you talked to the Lord about this? I was like, nope, he knows, he knows. He's like, well, you might have a nervous breakdown like I did when I was 37, but now he's got a $6 billion company that he owns by himself and he uses framework. Consult, Consult your friend Jesus. He said, number two, gather the facts, like figure out what's true and what's false. Number three, watch for circumstances. Like what do you see? that are trends that are important. And number four is get neutral. 
don't try to manipulate the outcome because a lot of times we want to do what we want to do instead of like just waiting for the right thing. It's kind of like what I was saying about sitting down and waiting for that door to, to open. And he's like, and if you use that framework, you'll make the best decisions every single time. And so even importing that wisdom on these guys that it has impacted my life, if you can, if you can impact lives, I think that's the biggest thing on mentorship. The other thing is just hiring A players. If you hire A players and you lead them well, I just think most of my job is taking what the board says, going and delivering a clear vision and then letting people execute. And when they have big issues, if they bring it to me, it's an issue that they really need help on and I need to get it resolved ASAP. And so it's a big decision that takes time to think through and make the right decision. And so, you know, I really empower them. I'm, I'm very impatient with B players and have no tolerance for C players. But like, that's the one of the biggest things. Get the A players on and pour into them and lead them well. And they'll go flourish and then let them be free. Don't try to control them. If they want to go start another company, go let them do it. If they want to go call me and say, hey, I'm leaving to go somewhere else. Great. How can I be supportive of you? Live free. The next person's going to come along and they're going to crush it. And that guy's going to go crush it. That girl's going to go crush it. And you're going to be friends and it's going to, and you're going to watch your success. And you're the one who planted the seed in the first place. Like, let it grow and flourish. Don't get upset. That's how I think about it. When I was younger, I was just like, what numbers do I need to hit? Who's the team? How do we do it? Please help me. You know, I'll do whatever, whatever I can. It's very different now where I think a lot about the mentorship and the wisdom and trying to take what I'm learning and even delivering that wisdom. It's one thing to learn something. It's another thing to teach something that grows you even deeper in, into what you believe. It's like saying it out loud is important kind of ingrain it in your heart, your mind, and your soul. How are you finding good people? Hiring people is the hardest thing in the world. And I've hired some A players and I've hired some really bad folks. And a lot of people say hire slow and fire fast. And in the startup world, you have to hire fast and fire fast. So what I found is like word of mouth is the most important thing. And then I take my time interviewing them and then always get reviews on people. Like before I was like, you know what? I don't have time. They're going to crush it. Let's go do it. I learned this in engineering with these engineers where we had a really bad experience and we've got these new folks that, that came on and they're really good, but I really want to get the old engineers out and the new ones in. But I was like, no, we want, we want two references for the specific guys, the, not your company, but these guys. And they got one, they're like, Hey, it's going to be another 10 days before we're something like that that we can get the other one. I was like, well, we're not signing the contract until we, enter, like, we think you're great, all the things. But we have to know, like, I, I have to know somebody who's worked with you to do that. And then I'll give, typically, you know, give a project before you get paid. This is going to take you, could take you a day, it could take you two weeks. And I want to see how you do. And I want to see how you are with the team. I want to see your work ethic. I want to see if you don't know how to do something, if you're asking questions. And on the other end of that, you know, we've, we've got an offer that we're ready to do, but we got to make sure that we like you. It's like date before you marry. It's like, got to make sure that we like you and you can do the job. You're competent and you have the attitude, the right attitude to do it. But I think it's the hardest thing ever. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. But that's, that's how I'm thinking about very specific situations because we've done, a, we've done a, a lot of hiring and had to let some folks go as well. I wholeheartedly agree that hiring is one of the absolute hardest things to do. And one of the challenging things is that you don't really know if somebody's going to be a good fit for 90 days, six months, maybe even longer. And 
you can do all the reference checks, but I find that, I mean, people aren't going to give you a reference that's not going to say good things. <laughs> yeah. So I wholeheartedly agree that it's one of the hardest things. And there's only so much you can do to mitigate on the front. And and I think for me anyway, I've had to go with my gut a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And sometimes my gut's right. Sometimes it's wrong. And then it goes back to expectations. Like, am I going to leave this person in the business just because I feel bad about it and I'm going to hurt their feelings or am I going to do what's right for the business and you have to do it? I mean, you're, you have a lot of responsibility and you're kind and you're gracious about it, but you go, Hey, it just didn't work out and here are the reasons and I love you, but I'll help you any way that I can. Oftentimes you're not just doing the right thing for the business. You're doing the right thing for them yeah, because if they're not, point. if they're not flourishing, you are preventing them from going and doing something where they could be flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Looking back, is there anything that you would do differently knowing what you know today? Yeah. I mean, this is like very specific, but I would I would get a, a deep technical understanding at first, like two years ago, because like when you're not technical, you want to change an industry. I'll tell you, I don't have time to do it or like, but go into the third-party engineering world and turn that thing on its head because the gap between great engineers it's like great engineers are terrible engineers. It's like there's nothing in the middle. And you've got all these companies that will outsource their service and you don't know what you're getting. And the model is is really broken. But I, th- I think that two years ago, I mean, this is like if you don't have enough capital to have in-house engineers, right? This is if you have to have a third-party group. But I would have gotten more technically savvy. Like we don't have any fatal flaws. We haven't made any issues with that. But I wish I would have known a lot more early on. Like when we built the website on Shopify at first. It was a great experience. But then the functionality quickly, you know, we needed more functionality that we had to go build ourselves. And so when we started doing that about eight months ago, it was rough. And then I just jumped in. I was like, I'm going to learn everything I possibly can. I've got to hire a new guy who can be a fractional CTO, get this stuff cleaned up. I learned the difference between, you know, that engineering and product are two different things. And you have to have design product and then front and back and engineers, quality assurance, stuff like that. And then within those roles, you know, who's going to play those roles. That's something that, you know, it's very specific to my situation, but it's something that we got fixed very quickly, but I wish we'd have done a better job six months ago. We've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that you wanted to get into that we haven't yet covered? No, man, this is, this is awesome. I'm so proud of you for doing this podcast and featuring all these different folks on. I think they're, I think it's super helpful and to learn and I think podcasts are, I mean, that's, I listen to music and podcasts and I learned every day I'm on the road, I'd put like 40,000 miles a year on my truck, like just traveling and meeting with people and things like that. And so podcasts are very important. So it's nice to do what you're doing because you get to, not only are you understanding what people do, but why they do it. And if you could understand how people think and why they make decisions and why they do what they do, it's very interesting because you can pick up nuggets here and there that can make you better that you may not get in other forums. And so I'm thankful for you and and proud of you for doing this and and appreciate you having me on. Always be learning. Always be learning. Lusk, thanks for coming in, man. Yeah, bro. Thanks for having me. That was Jonathan Lusk, CEO and co-founder of Bird Dog. To learn more, visit birddogit.com. That's birddogit.com. 
If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.